Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is just sort of a warning announcement. There are two or three pastors who are, have been working on a plan to have a, uh, a teen camp in Colorado this summer to, for uh, inviting all of the teens from all the doctrinal churches around the country, all the churches that participate in the conference, Schaefer Conference in March. And so they're putting together some things right now and trying to get finalize a, uh, a contract with a uh, rent camp. That means there's a Christian camp that provides all the staff, all the uh, logistical support, cooking and all that kind of thing. At a, uh, why I did that? What just happened? A logistical at a at a camp in uh, Colorado, and so Jeff is kind of uh, involved in that right now, working with uh, Mark Perkins at Front Range Bible Church up in Denver, and um, uh, David Roseland, Press City Bible Church, and a couple of other pastors as well. So just be thinking about that because. Uh, and planning for any any of the teens to go this summer. It's going to be sometime in July, and as the next month progresses, I think their plan, Jeff will correct me if I'm wrong, because that's the kind of guy he is, uh, um, that they hope to have all the details finalized and in absolute perfect order by the 1st of December, so that they can get the publicity out to all the churches so the people can make can make plans. So he gave me a thumbs up, so I guess I was right. Okay, let's uh, bow our heads together and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer as usual before we begin so that you can make sure that you are uh, ready and spiritually prepared uh, to study the word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we read again and again in the Old Testament, our hope is in you. Our hope is not in individuals. Our hope is not in political parties. Our our hope is not in specific institutions, but our hope is in you. And however the elections go this evening and whatever takes place, we know that ultimately the direction of a nation is determined by the volition of the people. And according to Scripture, the direction of the nation goes in terms of the hearts of the people, in terms of their orientation to you. And we know that uh, from our study of uh, Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, that even though kings changed and you had administration, administration changes and some kings brought in evil, other kings reversed the process, that nevertheless it was the, the heart of the people that was determinative and it did not ultimately matter what the, how the administration changed things from the top down. If there's not a change of heart, a change in the soul of the people from the bottom up, then there is no real change. Father, we know that the only real change is that which is in relation to you and in relation to your plan, and especially your plan of salvation 
in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we just continue to pray for our nation that you might preserve and protect this nation from those who would seek to do us harm, both internally as well as externally, the many terrorists that seek to infiltrate this nation with various means of destruction. We pray that you would continue to protect us, that we might continue as a nation to uh, stand firm as a light to the truth, sending out missionaries and also uh, standing in support of Israel. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts. Tonight, we are going to finish our introduction to the book of Acts, so you should have some notes. Mark is there in the back with the notes for tonight, which will be the last uh, four or five pages of the introductory material, so if you need them, just uh, uh, stick your hand up, wave a little bit. We promise no one will think you're charismatic or getting the baptized in the Spirit. We've gone through a number of different things in relationship to uh, to the book of Acts, just understanding background in terms of uh, author, in terms of the date when it was written, in terms of the basic overview and structure of the book of Acts, its purpose, its uniqueness within the, uh, within the New Testament. And one more thing that I want to cover tonight, or actually two more points I want to cover in the outline, Number uh, Roman numeral 14 and Roman numeral 15. Uh, Roman numeral 14 has to do with understanding some of the historical aspects, historical background, just to give you a bit of a frame of reference for things that we will meet and run into as we go through our uh, study of the book of Acts. First of all, there was a shift in biblical scholarship that actually... The groundwork was laid in, during the Enlightenment period. Now, those of you who are historically challenged, the Enlightenment period basically ran through the 1600s and 1700s. And in the in, uh, period of the Enlightenment, there was a reaction to the teaching, the authoritative teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And in Enlightenment thinking, the Middle Ages was often referred to as the Dark Ages because they looked at the time as being uh, intellectually dark. It was not a time of intellectual darkness, but in terms of the thought of the Enlightenment uh, philosophers, it was intellectually dark because of the uh, what they considered to be the teaching of, of the church. And often this is misportrayed in history classes as a struggle between you know, reason and religion, and it's not. It was uh, uh, actually it was a struggle between two different kinds of reason. The reason that was based upon Aristotelian thought uh, that dominated the Middle Ages. The what what really shaped, twisted, or distorted the teaching of the Bible and theology in the Middle Ages was the influence first of of Platonism and then the influence of Aristotelianism. And both of these, the, uh, the, the philosophers and theologians became enamored with Greek thought, and it was within either the framework of uh, Platonism or the framework of Aristotelianism that theology was interpreted and that the Bible was interpreted. And that led to a certain amount of, of superstition, and it led to uh, distortions of, of biblical teaching. 
when when the western when western civilization rediscovered i touched on this a little bit sunday morning when we talked about the protestant reformation when western civilization rediscovered the original language manuscripts of the bible both old testament hebrew and new testament greek then it drove them to a study of of the original and at the same time this is in the roughly the late 1400s mid 1400s you have the invention of the of the printing press and with combination of the printing press now the ability to mass uh, mass produce uh, bibles in greek texts plus you had the invasion uh, into europe of the muslim hordes uh, in one of their uh, many attempts to capture capture the world for allah uh, as they came up, captured uh, Constantinople in the middle part of the 15th century, and as they were pressing on up into the Balkans and up towards uh, Vienna and Austria and that area, then what happened was that the, the, the monks and the monasteries that were in those areas that had these treasures of, of, of ancient uh, manuscripts and scrolls would gather them up and flee into Europe. And so things that had been hidden away in monastic libraries for literally a thousand years or so uh, suddenly uh, came to life. And this caused, this was part of the Renaissance. In the southern part of, um, in southern Europe, the Renaissance drove uh, <clears throat> the scholars to go to the original sources for Aristotle, Plato, for the Greek and Roman writers. But in central Europe, and in northern Europe, especially Germany, Switzerland, France, it drove them to the original sources of the scripture, to the Greek text that uh, lies behind the, um, uh, the New Testament. And so that is what caused real, true, genuine revival. That is what brought light into darkness. Uh, but it also brought an overthrow of the authority of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, now, once that authority that had really dominated everybody in the, and kept everything under control for over a thousand years in Western Europe, once that authority began to be questioned and began to uh, be thrown off, then there were those who really weren't interested in being under the authority of God either. And so what they did was they became independent, and they were what is known as the forerunners of modern secular humanists, and they became enlightenment thinkers trying to reach absolute truth without paying any attention to uh, the Bible and rejecting any kind of, uh, <clears throat> any kind of external authority. That led to a questioning of biblical accuracy. Is this really true? Well, we never heard of people like the Hittites, and we never heard of this battle or that place or this event or that person anywhere other than in the Bible. And so starting in the late 1600s and early 1700s, you had these Enlightenment thinkers who did not, who, whose presupposition or assumption was that God certainly can't communicate to people. He's never communicated to me. How can I believe he communicated to Moses or somebody else? That's a pretty shallow basis for developing any kind of, uh, of, of thought system, but that's exactly what their thought system was. And that took root and it eventually flowered in the early 19th century and gave birth to uh, what has become known as 19th century European uh, liberalism, European uh, Protestant 
uh, liberalism, and it's affected everything. So that when, today, when you think about Protest, uh, uh, Presbyterian theology or Methodist theology, or you think about even in, in Judaism, uh, the Reform movement was affected by that. Came and so those who rejected the Orthodox beliefs that God inspired the Torah, uh, those who rejected that, spun off uh, in the late uh, late 1700s. In, um, in Roman Catholicism, you also had many the development of liberal theology within uh, within Roman Catholic theology. So that <clears throat> Presbyterian theology today isn't what it was 120 years ago, and Methodist theology today isn't what it was 120, 130 years ago. Baptist theology today, now not necessarily Southern Baptist, that's still conservative and orthodox, but all of the, everything changed in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And among Protestants, that was called the fundamentalist modernist movement. The modernists were those who rejected biblical authority, rejected miracles, rejected uh, Pauline authorship as much as they could, rejected uh, the, the deity of Christ, rejected the literal resurrection of Christ. All on the all, all on the presupposition that that this 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 is just a fallible human book written by fallible human beings. And there's no such thing that, as God uh, inspiring an inerrant, infallible, uh, infallible scripture. So part of that was an attack on both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts uh, as being historically inaccurate in a number of different places. But the problem, what, what, what's, what happened is that th- those attacks that were made in the late 1700s and early 1800s, even though they gave birth to a anti-biblical theological system, often the foundational ideas that they had were were disproven through historical discoveries, archaeological discoveries in the middle to the late 19th century and into the 20th century. Yet nevertheless, those liberal ideas had taken hold and and people still would 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 teach them, and there are evidence things such as the documentary hypothesis on the uh, multiple uh, uh, documents behind the Pentateuch is one that uh, was clearly disproven by archaeology and the and the analysis and discovery of so many ancient documents in the early 20th century, and yet by you still have can go to university and be taught this as being actual fact by many. Uh, many historians. So Luke's accuracy as a historian came under attack for most of the 1700s and 1800s. But there was a, a scholar by the name of William Ramsey, who was an arche- uh, one of the early archaeologists and historians and theologians who did a tremendous amount of work, especially in the area of Greece and what is now Turkey, and through the uh, work of Sir William Ramsey, he did a tremendous amount to validate the, uh, the history that we have in Luke and Acts and to uh, validate the, the fact that Luke was exactly right in the way he wrote things. He was exactly correct, for example, when he refers to certain uh, provinces in uh, Turkey or Asia Minor, the, that area as it was called at that time, he used the correct terms, and he used terms that would be correct for his period of time. Those terms for leaders, government leaders, officials, things of that nature, would change from, for example, the rulers of Thessalonica 
were different terms than those that were used in Athens, and those were different from the terms that were used in Corinth. And maybe a hundred years earlier they were different, two hundred years later they were different, but uh, the terms that Luke uses in Acts were accurate and correct for that time period. His geography is correct. All the things that he just uh, refers to sort of as an aside and that reflects the culture, the history, the geography, the, the politics, the administration of, of this period of time uh, have clearly been demonstrated to be accurate so that no no legitimate scholar today doubts or questions the historicity of the, either the, the gospel or the book of Acts. Luke got it right, and it's been uh, demonstrated that way. Uh, we see that the author of Acts, under point one there, uh, the author of Acts was acquainted with all the different political arrangements in the provinces, uh, which uh, are <clears throat> covered in the narration of Paul's missionary journeys. Under point two, we see that at the time when Paul was in Cyprus, a proconsul was in charge, and although there had been many changes within a brief period of time, Luke used the correct title when describing Sergius Paulus as the uh, as the proconsul in charge in Cyprus. Uh, Philippi, or as the Greeks pronounce it, Philippi, is accurately described as a Roman colony in the book of Acts. This is when Paul uh, is thrown in prison, and the next day he emphasizes the fact that he's a Roman citizen. Well, if this if that city is a Roman colony as, and he's a Roman citizen, then how they treated him uh, was completely outside of the law, and that meant that they could be brought up on charges and could, could um, uh, uh, be executed for, for treating a, uh, a Roman citizen in such a manner. Under point number four, uh, Thessaloniki, the unusual uh, term politarchs is used, for which there were no apparent, uh, there's no other term, that term is not used anywhere else in the entire Roman Empire, but uh, uh, inscriptional evidence now shows that that is what the rulers in Thessaloniki were called, uh, politarchs. Uh, at uh, uh, Malta, uh, the, you know, my, I have a Greek word in there, and it didn't print it. That really helps. Uh, but at Malta, the rulers correctly called, in terms of the Greek term there, translated chief man, but the Greek term that is used is accurate for that uh, time period. And then also at Ephesus, there are correct references to the local uh, government organization, with Asiarchs controlling religious affairs and the secretary chief clerk, chief clerk wielding uh, considerable in influence. So all of this is to show that when Paul uh, or when Luke talks about the, uh, the, the rulers, the different terms that he uses, the ways he describes uh, the, the geography, the travels, all of that. It accurately reflects what we have learned about that time period through archaeology, through inscriptional evidence, and through uh, historical writings of that particular time. So Luke shows that he genuinely is a man of that era. Acts could not have been written in the second century uh, after Christ because uh, things were very different in that time. Uh, and so this means he must be writing in the middle of the, uh, of, the, of the first century. 
Now, the second thing I want to talk about in terms of history is understanding the Herods. And the trouble is that the term Herod, like the term Caesar, came to be applied to the, everybody, all of his sons, those in the family, and so it can get a little bit uh, confusing for everybody. So I'm going to try to uh, simplify this uh, if possible. Once again, we have to be familiar with the map because we're going to start with Herod the Great. Uh, Herod was a, really in his youth, he was an incredible accomplished, educated individual. He had a passion for architecture. And everywhere you go throughout uh, Israel, and they discover the remains of the things that he did. And uh, the architectural uh, projects that he had are just uh, just incredible. But he was a man who, as time went by, became uh, erratic, became neurotic, if not psychotic, and who was a paranoid and he believed, with some good reason in some cases, that his sons were all out to kill him uh, so that they could take over the kingdom. And so in order to forestall their uh, conspiratorial attempts to, um, uh, to overthrow him or to kill him, he just uh, uh, took uh, preventative action and had them executed. And so reading the life and times of Herod the Great and his family as he marries one woman, divorces her, marries another, it's, uh, it would outdo any soap opera on uh, television. Uh, Hollywood couldn't, if, if somebody handed Hollywood a script like this, they would say, no, we can't really do this. It's too unbelievable. Truth is usually stranger than fiction. So this just gives you a map of the area. The area that is shaded in green is the area that was the territory of Herod the Great as it was given to him by uh, uh, Augustus, Caesar, Augustus, and uh, and Mark Antony, uh, it will be divided up among his sons. And uh, just a couple of the areas uh, I wanted to point out in terms of geography. In the south, you have the area of Idumea. This is south of Judea. This includes the areas of uh, Beersheba at the, at the south, uh, over to the Dead Sea, to, which is to the right. You have Arid over there and uh, the location of Masada, which plays an important role in the story of Herod. Herod is the one who is going to rebuild the fortress uh, at Masada, so he is a place to escape to in case there's a revolt against him. He was always afraid somebody was going to try to uh, overthrow him and steal uh, steal his throne, so he would set up these various fortifications uh, around the land so that he would have some place to go to go hide in case uh, he needed to. He rebuilt... Uh, the Herodium. Actually, he hid his family there early on when there was a Parthian uh, invasion and an insurrection. And after he regained power, then he rebuilt it. But he never actually went there uh, to live or to to enjoy it. Then, if you go up the on the uh, right side of the map, up on the uh, east side of the Jordan, in what is now the Hashemai Kingdom of Jordan, you have the area that was referred to as the Decapolis. And these were uh, ten cities, the Greek word deca meaning ten, and these were ten uh, cities, Greek cities. Uh, Gerasa, our modern Jerash, or it's called Jerash here, that has one of the largest um, largest archaeological remains uh, that's been uh, uncovered, second only to Ephesus in Turkey. It's just a huge 
uh, huge site, remarkable site there. Uh, they've, uh, the old chariot uh, race area, uh, the stadium where they had the chariot races, has been completely redone, and they hold chariot races there uh, today. Uh, also over here you have Scythopolis, which is uh, also known as Beit Shan, and then a num- number of other cities up here, Gadara and Gerasa, uh, the Gergesenes, all that uh, is known from stories in the life of Christ related to uh, various uh, individuals with, who are demon-possessed. This area up here, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, this is also the Golan Heights, and it's this territory that became uh, that went to his son Philip, and he was called a tetrarch. We'll get into the difference between uh, some of these different terms a little later on. So now here's just a basic chart that you can look at to just uh, sort of understand who the basic Herods are. Across the top you have the three basic geographical areas, Judea, Galilee, and Iturea. Now let me back up a minute to this map. Here's Galilee in the north. Here's Judea in the south. And then this area to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee was called Iturea. And there were also some uh, other names for some of the smaller areas there, uh, Trachonitis and um, uh, Batanga here and Galantis over here. Uh, Iturea is up here in the north, but all of this this area here uh, is uh, just the area north and east of of the um, Sea of Galilee. So you have these three territories, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, and Iturea. Herod ruled all of them. They were all part of his empire uh, that was given to him by, by Rome, and he ruled from uh, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. That's the top line going across. Then when he died, his kingdom is going to be divided up among his sons. Uh, Herod Archelaus, who only rules to, to 6 B.C., he's called an ethnarch. Uh, then Herod, another son, Herod Antipas, uh, gets another section. He gets mostly the Galilee, uh, area of the Galilee and down to, um, uh, Perea. And he is called a tetrarch. Now he's significant for the book of Acts because he is going to uh, reign until 39 uh, AD. And then Herod, uh, Herod Philip, the tetrarch, just barely is involved in our period. And he just rules until 34. Then when Herod Antipas dies, he's replaced by uh, Herod Agrippa I, who rules from 39 to 44. And he is mentioned in the book of Acts, and Acts 12 specifically. And then he is going to be succeeded by Herod Agrippa II. So this little chart just helps you to see who these uh, who the different Herods are that are mentioned. Sometimes they're just referred to as Herod, and so that can get a little bit uh, a little bit confusing. So let's just uh, look at this little uh, chart here. This is the family of uh, Herod going back to his great-grandfather, Antipater I, who came to power during the time of the, of the uh, Maccabeans. And so he, Antipater II, had several sons, uh, the most significant of which is Herod the Great. And then Herod is going to have several, several wives, and that's on the next line uh, going across from the left. You have Doris and Mariamne the first, and then he married another Mariamne, so she's called Mariamne the second. 
then Mouthrace, and then Cleopatra of Jerusalem. And underneath those are the um, the sons that uh, he had through each one of the wives. So let's just start off by talking a little bit briefly about Herod the Great. Um, he was an Edomite. He, that means he's a descendant of Esau, and the territory of the Edomites is in the uh, southern part of Judea, south of Judea, actually, and this was their their territory. In 47 B.C., he was appointed to be the governor of Galilee. He was young at the time. He's extremely ambitious. He's 25 years old, and at the time that he is appointed, he uh, he got into trouble with uh, the Jewish authorities on uh, several occasions, and so he was stirring up too much trouble, so the Romans uh, appointed him to be the governor of Syria uh, within a couple of years. In uh, 41 B.C., then Antony, Mark Antony, uh, who's known to have had his uh, romantic liaisons with Cleopatra, uh, appointed Herod and his brother Phasael, uh, to be tetrarchs of Judea, so they jointly ruled Judea. Then in 40 B.C., just a, a year later, the Parthians invade and they gain control of Jerusalem, and they have cause, they've worked with various uh, rebellious elements among the Jews, and so they've caused this revolt to take place. Now what's interesting about this is that Parthia is the area of Persia, so we're talking about the area of Iraq and Iran, and uh, that's where the Parthian Empire existed, and it is that same area, since Christmas is coming in a couple of months, that's the same area of the old Babylonian Empire that was made up by the Medes and the Persians. The Parthians were the inheritors of the empire of the Medes and the Persians, and one of the tribes of the Medes were called the Magi, and they had uh, they, they had a lot of uh, background in uh, various types of, uh, of magic and astronomy and astrology and these kinds of things. And it's believed that because of the use of that term in the Aramaic text of Daniel, that when uh, Daniel, because of his ability to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that he was uh, made a member of this Magi caste. And later on, this Magi caste uh, it be- becomes so powerful within the uh, basic structure of the Parthian Empire that they are the ones who, are, who determine the succession of kingship. So the Magi actually played a major role in appointing the successive kings in the Parthian Empire. Okay, just keep that sort of in the back of your mind. What happens with Herod in 40 is that there's this insurrection that occurs in Judea that is fomented by the Parthians, and then the Parthians invade, and he has to flee. They set up Antigonus, who was one of the uh, uh, leaders in the uh, Maccabean uh, dynasty, and they set him up to be a puppet ruler in Jerusalem. His brother Phaziel is captured, and uh, before he can be tortured, he committed suicide. And so Herod takes his family to Masada, and at Masada, he, they're, they're going to be protected in a fort, fortification, and then he's going to go to Rome for the cavalry to try to get some help against the, um, uh, against the uh, Parthians. He goes to, flees to Egypt, then from Alexandria, he sails to Rome, and in uh, uh, Rome, he approaches Mark Antony and Augustus, uh, Octavian, and they um, uh, they appoint him to be the king of the Jews. 
So they send him back with the appropriate uh, Roman support, and he goes back to the port of Akko, which is uh, north of Haifa, and he goes from there to, uh, to down, and he rescues or delivers uh, the area of Galilee, raising various uh, more troops. He rescues his family at Masada, and then he eventually is, is uh, successful in expelling the uh, Parthians from the area of Judea and Galilee. He uh, captures Sepphoris, which is the capital of Galilee in the midst of a snowstorm in 39 B.C., just one of the great battles uh, of the ancient world. And by 37 B.C., he finally captures Jerusalem. And But in the process, thousands of Jews are slaughtered because they're fighting against Herod with the, um, with the Parthians because they don't want Rome to dominate them. And so this does not make Herod real popular uh, among the Jews, and so he is a very, uh, he seems a very violent, bloodthirsty ruler, and the Jews are never very, uh, very happy with him. Uh, but uh, and during the same time, he gets rid of his first wife, marries his second wife, and then uh, the family uh, continues. Under point 12, I tried to summarize simply the succession to Herod, but as I state in the first line, the succession to Herod was a real mess. His sons Alexander and Aristobulus were his favorites. And Alexander and uh, Aristobulus are... Um, let me see if I, I had them located on the chart earlier. Um, they're the, the sons of Mariamne the first. And she's his favorite wife initially, and so they're his favorites, and he dotes on them. But as they come to adulthood and they've been spoiled, they, uh, they become a little impatient for his death so that they can uh, inherit the kingdom. So they decide that they want to uh, uh, maybe uh, help nature along a little bit. And uh, they found, are found guilty of conspiracy to kill him, and they're executed by strangulation in 7 B.C., uh, Antipater is then the one, the son of his uh, first wife Doris. He now is brought back. He's been exiled for a while, and so he is uh, he's brought back. But he grows impatient as well, and he attempts to poison Herod, but it doesn't go well. Instead, uh, Herod's other brother Pheroras uh, drank the poison, and he dies. And so Antipater was imprisoned, and then. Um, uh, Herod had to wait to get permission from Caesar to execute him. And in the meantime, he designated uh, Archelaus uh, to be king in his, uh, his place and then to appoint uh, his, uh, the next son, Antipas, Herod Antipas, as the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, and then uh, Philip to be the tetrarch of the area in the north, Eritrea, uh, broken down to these four provinces, Galanitis, Trachonitis, Batanea, and Peneus. Uh, Herod died miserably in 4 B.C. We're not really sure what he died from, but it was probably a confluence of uh, various kinds of uh, stomach cancers and other things. And he had um, he had Antipater uh, in, in, uh, executed just a few days before his death. And then um, Archelaus and Antipas, after his death, go to Rome because they want to dispute the inheritance line. And when they do that, Augustus uh, compromised by making Archelaus the ethnarch, which means ruler of a nation from ethnos, meaning Gentile or nation, uh, made Archelaus the ethnarch over Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. Let me see. I think I have a map here. There we go. 
Uh, he's going to make uh, Archelaus his ethnarch over Idumea, which is down here uh, in the south, uh, Judea here, and Samaria. So that's the area shaded in uh, dark green. Then uh, Antipas is made tetrarch, that is ruler of a quarter, uh, over Galilee and Perea. That's indicated by the area shaded in brown here, these two particular areas. And then Philip was made the tetrarch over uh, the area uh, up here shaded in, uh, in uh, periwinkle, it looks like, uh, Trachonitis, Aronitis, Batanea, Galenitis, and this area uh, up here. So those, that, that just sort of sets up the succession that we're going to run into and why things are such a divided mess when we get into the book of Acts and you talk about different, uh, different Herods. The next Herod to talk about is Herod the Ethnarch, the ruler of the nations, Archelaus. Remember, he is the one who uh, had succession of the area in the green. He doesn't last very long. Uh, he's got uh, ruler over Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. Uh, but he is the worst of Herod's sons before going to Rome in order to dispute uh, the inheritance with um, uh, dispute the inheritance with Antipas. He had three thousand killed uh, by putting down a revolution that were led by people who were avenging those uh, that dear old dad Herod had had killed, and so uh, that did not uh, make him very popular, and so he was so brutal that. Uh, the uh, Jewish authorities sent a uh, uh, delegation to Rome in order to protest his being appointed as the, uh, as the ethnarch. He further angers the Jews by marrying Glaphira, his half-brother Alexander's widow, and he is so uh, repressive and intolerable that uh, finally he is removed uh, by the emperor. And so his reign only lasts until uh, 86. Now, the birth of Jesus occurs just before 4 B.C. Uh, and the death of Herod. So Herod the Great dies sometime in 4 B.C. That's pretty well established. So Jesus had to, be, to have been born maybe a year before Herod died, so maybe sometime uh, in early 4 B.C. or in uh, 5 B.C., probably sometime in 5 B.C., so that just kind of locates that for you chronologically. Now, the next character is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who is the uh, ruler, he's the tetrarch, he's the ruler of Galilee and Perea. His, uh, he's the uh, Herod's younger son through Malthus, and he is um, uh, the ruler through the first nine chapters in the book of Acts. He's the one who's ruling in Galilee and Perea. He's the Herod who imprisoned and executed John the Baptist in Mark uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 28. Jesus referred to him as the fox in Luke 13, 3. Uh, like his father, he's a gifted architect and administrator. He built the city of Tiberias, uh, which he named for the emperor, and he also uh, rebuilt the city of Sepphoris, which later becomes a major center uh, for rabbinical study after the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of uh, Judaism into the early 2nd century. 
his family life and marriages are just about as confusing as his father's. Initially, he married the daughter of the Nabataean king, Aretas IV. Uh, then he divorced her to marry Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, who's the ruler of the uh, area to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. This is the marriage John the Baptist announced as unlawful. That didn't make John the Baptist very uh, uh, very attractive to uh, Antipas or to Herodias, and this is why, what eventually led to John uh, losing his head. Uh, Aretas the fourth then uh, wasn't real happy with the fact that his daughter had been divorced. He took that as an affront, so he attacked Antipas in uh, AD 36. This is a two or three years after um, after the uh, uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ. Antipas is defeated, and this was viewed as divine judgment for the execution of John the Baptist. In AD 39, his nephew Herod Agrippa informed uh, the emperor Caligula that Antipas was plotting against him, and so Antipas was deposed and exiled until his death. So that's the last we hear of Herod Antipas. And then the last one that is is significant in Acts is, is Herod Agrippa, referred to also as Herod the King in Acts 12, He's the son of Aristobulus, the grandson of Herod the Great. And following the execution of his father in 7 BC, he grew up in Rome with extremely close ties to the emperor's family. There was a messianic thought about him. So that's important to understand. There's a lot going on behind the scenes here. There's this uh, sort of messianic uh, aura about um, uh, Herod Agrippa. And so when he comes to take his place as, as uh, the, the ruler in, let's see, and uh, in, in the, in the ruler of, of this, uh, of, of the kingdom, then he is idolized by the people. And I believe that, uh, that though Acts doesn't go into a lot of detail on this, I think this is the, one of the reasons that when he is being um, idolized by the people in Caesarea, and he is, uh, they're shouting that he is like a god. This is when he dies. And I think he, that God takes him out of the picture at that point because a sort of a Messiah cult was, uh, could have developed around him. And so this is another way of God's protecting, uh, the infant church. Uh, he had a son also called Agrippa, who's Herod Agrippa II. He had two, two daughters. There's a misspelling there. It's Bernice. And mentioned in Acts 25:13 and and Drusilla, and it was to Herod Agrippa II that Paul uh, Paul explains the gospel. I said a number of different uh, conversations with him about theology, about Jesus Christ, and these are recorded in the, the last part of the book of Acts. And he's the one who comments that you know if Paul just kept talking, he might eventually convince him that he was right. Um, this is Herod, Herod Agrippa II. So that sort of gives you an idea. It's Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, and uh, Antipas. Those are the three that have uh, a, any kind of correlation to the book, uh, to the uh, events in the book of Acts. Now, the last thing in terms of the uh, in terms of the introduction is that there are seven progress reports that are given in the book of Acts, and these are given in these particular verses. In Acts 2.47, we're told that the people who heard Peter's uh, first sermon there on the day of Pentecost were praising God uh, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There were already 
3,000 who were saved that day. In Acts 7, the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So there's huge numbers who are uh, trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts 9.31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. So there are literally tens of thousands of of, uh, Jewish people who are being uh, converted, believing in Jesus. The church is primarily Jewish until you get up into the period of the 60s. So for the first 30 years, it's primarily Jewish. And then as the gospel goes to the Gentile nations via Paul, then, then of course, it, it changes. Uh, Acts 12.24 is the fourth uh, uh, marker. Uh, the word of God grew and multiplied. The next progress report is in Acts 16.5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And then uh, 7, Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And finally, Acts 28.31, they were preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now, remember that verse. This is near the end of Acts. It's sort of a summary, and it's talking about what is going on. They are preaching the kingdom of God. What does that mean? We've got to think about that. Because this idea of the kingdom of God, as we'll see, is uh, present from the very beginning. So let's go back. Open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 1. And I want to begin tonight with just going through the prologue in these first, uh, first three verses. Just to give you a little reminder on the structure of the book of Acts, the key verse is in Acts 1.8, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he, they will be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, and then in Samaria, Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Those three divisions are uh, 1-1 to 6-7, uh, 6-8 to 12-25, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, chapter 13 through chapter 28-31. Uh, Here's the rough general outline of these three sections, Jerusalem, chapters 1-1 through 6-7, Judea and Samaria, 6, 8 to 931, and uh, God expanding the church to the end of the earth in 932 to 2831. I have another document here just to show you the basic outline. This is what I handed out initially, that in the first section, I summarize this as God through the Holy Spirit authenticates, empowers, and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. That first word is very important. He, God always authenticates what he is doing. Nothing happens in private. The scripture is not full of a bunch of people who just have private spiritual experiences with God and then run off and tell people about it. What God does in private, he always authenticates or validates through some sort of public validation, some sort of public uh, miracle or event, something of that nature. The greatest of which, of course, is the resurrection. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that Jesus uh, presented himself alive to his uh, disciples and to many others through many infallible proofs. See, there's validation. They didn't just believe somebody rose from the dead. This had never happened before. So Jesus gives them confirming evidence, uh, em- uh, empirical evidence, 
that he is alive, just as alive as he was before he was crucified on the cross, that he truly rose, rose from the dead. They could feel the, as Thomas did, feel the uh, wounds in his hands and his side and his feet. They could see that he was the same Jesus. He was a, he had a, a body. It was not a physical mortal body. It was some sort of a, a spiritual body, but he was able to, um, Uh, He was able to demonstrate to them that he had indeed risen physically and bodily from the grave. It's not just a matter of of something that they hallucinated, but it changed them. These are 11 men who run and hide at the time of the cross, and just uh, a week or two later, after Jesus is raised from the dead, these are men who are willing to give their lives and in many cases do give their lives, and we'll go through, eventually go through a history of all of the different apostles and what happened to them. Uh, they did, many of them did give their lives for the gospel because they knew Jesus rose from the dead. It changed them completely. It just, it transformed their, their character. So, we're told that Jesus uh, appeared to them through many infallible proofs, uh, being seen by them 40 days, and what else? And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So during that 40-day period from the resurrection on the day of first fruits until 10 days before the day of Pentecost, Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then the last verse in the book of Acts talks about the fact that the church, as it, as it expanding, is teaching about the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? And it's very important to under, uh, to understand that. So God through the Holy Spirit authenticates what He's doing. He validates it. He empowers the church through the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said, Jesus promised that, uh, not many days from then, uh, they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the growth of the church is not a natural phenomenon. It's not because you had a brilliant CEO who was able to go out and build a Fortune 500 company. It happened as a result of uh, the work of God the Holy Spirit uh, within the church. So the Holy Spirit empowers and directs uh, their witness uh, initially in Jerusalem in these first uh, five chapters plus seven verses in chapter six. So the first division is in the first two chapters, the birth of the new spiritual entity, the church. And then at the very beginning, we have the prologue. In the first three verses, Jesus provided convincing evidence of his resurrection and taught the disciples about the kingdom of God. That is just briefly uh, summarizes that. Now, come to verse 1. It's um, pretty simple, the narrative. Uh, the, Luke is writing, and he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And here he is uh, just starting a second volume of something he has already started. He's just beginning to give, to continue the record of all that uh, taken place uh, first initially with Jesus and his public ministry leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then at this point, he's going to continue with what happened after, after the resurrection. Uh, in the Greek, the uh, second word, which is uh, untranslated, it's uh, kind of brought into the word former, but not, uh, it's not really, English doesn't handle this the same way, is the uh, Greek word men. 
and men is often untranslated. It's uh, technically it's a concessive adverb, but it is put into a narrative because it cre- it's one of those words that uh, in, in, in Greek writing and storytelling, it creates an expectation in the reader's mind that something else is coming. And as soon as you see that word men, you know that there's more that's going to come, that it's, it raises the expectation of ongoing, uh, ongoing action. Now, he writes this to, oh, to Theophilus. Now, this is the same Theophilus that is mentioned in uh, the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully. This was how Luke was. He was, he was a historian. He, he's not just writing down tales and stories and legends, but especially with the gospel, when he was in, he was with Paul, when Paul was in prison in Caesarea by the sea, Luke had the opportunity to go and interview all the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. He interviews Mary. He interviews all of the other family members, the brothers uh, to Jesus. He interviews uh, all of the others who listened to him. He probably interviewed Mary and Martha and all of those who were uh, close to Jesus and who were with him during uh, during his ministry. So he gets all of the eyewitness accounts down, and then on the basis of those eyewitness accounts, he composes under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, he writes the gospel. The, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing the gospels or writing any of the books of the scripture isn't just done in a vacuum. It's not like they just sort of get zapped by God and they sit down in a trance and write it. Uh, God works behind the scenes. He oversees what they write to guarantee the inerrancy of the doctrine, uh, inerrancy of the document, that everything that they write is correct, but it's written within their, in, their own style. It's written in their own, with their own vocabulary. It often reflects their own background, but nevertheless, it is overseen by God the Holy Spirit. So he uses research and all these other things are part of the writing uh, of the scripture this makes the bible unique from any other book in all uh, any other religious book in all of history uh, it's not unique from the old testament moses did that all those little phrases you read as you go through genesis and this is the record of and this is the or this is the uh, what happened to adam or the you know the universe and then adam and then noah etc all those that what uh, the hebrew has as toledot passages those are the same thing those are reflect the document document history that moses had available to him when he sat down and composed the account of the book of uh, the book of genesis now, when we look at this name Theophilus, literally it means uh, Theo from Theos, meaning God, and Philos from uh, Phileo, meaning love. It means someone who's dear to God or loved by God. Some people think that this was a pseudonym for someone who was high up in the household of Caesar. Other people think that uh, this was uh, just sort of an idealized name for not a particular individual, but just anyone who was a lover of God. Uh, but none of this is really necessary. Theophilus was a common name. We now know from uh, documents that we have discovered from uh, in, in Greece, Turkey, that area from the first, second, third centuries, that this was a common name, and it's attested uh, very much in documents from the first century. This also fits the style that was 
uh, typical of how someone would address a patron, someone who perhaps had helped to finance them and so they're able to carry on this research and uh, write this, this kind of a book. We see this with Josephus' writings. Josephus was a Jewish general who uh, led his armies against the Romans in the uh, war, the, uh, the revolt against Rome in the uh, late 60s, but he was defeated and he surrendered uh, to the Romans. And after that, he realized that the Jews really didn't stand a, a chance. And so he, uh, act, after that, he became very close to the household of Titus and went back to Rome. And there he wrote, uh, as a defense of the Jews, he wrote uh, the various histories of the Jews. He wrote the Jewish Antiquities, uh, his autobiography, and then two volumes called uh, Against Apion. And at the beginning of his first volume of uh, Against Apion, he addresses the volume to uh, Epaphroditus, who he refers to as Epaphroditus' most excellent of men. The second, when he gets to the second volume, remember this is parallel to Luke who addresses Luke to Theophilus and then he addresses the second volume, Acts, also to Theophilus. So this, there's a lot of similarities here. The second volume of Against Apion, uh, is also, is introduced with the words, by means of the former volume, my most honored Epaphroditus, I have demonstrated our antiquity. So what we see here is that the way Luke begins the book of Acts is very typical of the ways that things were written at that uh, time period. And so he's going to write about the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That was what was in the former account, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, what he did in terms of the miracles that he performed and what he taught. Up until the day in which he was taken up, that is the ascension, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now that verse at the top is the New King James translation. I tried to smooth it out a little bit. Uh, the English has to, re- to, for the English to make sense, you have to reorder, rearrange all of the clauses in the Greek because the Greek is is really mixed up for a couple of different reasons. So I retranslated that to try to smooth it out until which day he was taken up. He, meaning Jesus, had already, it's a uh, aorist participle there, so it precedes the action of the main verb. Uh, He had already given orders to the apostles, that is, before he was taken up, whom he had chosen through the Holy Spirit. Now this introduces us to the doctrine of apostleship. And this is going to be important as a foundation through this chapter and on into the book. So we'll come back next time because we're just about out of time and start with the doctrine of apostleship. And there's two or three things I'm going to clarify as we go through this from the last time I taught this that actually there are three different kinds of three different categories of apostleship uh, in the New Testament. So we'll come back and look at that next time as we uh, start to get into the Uh, details of the book of Acts. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, study these things and to realize that in this history you are working out your plan and purpose as you gave birth to this new uh, spiritual entity, the church, and the role and purpose of the church within history. Father, we pray that uh, you would just really help us to understand the things that are written here and the significant role the Holy Spirit plays in this unique uh, ministry, this unique organism of the church, 
and the ongoing history that began with the book of Acts, but even now continues. And we're just a continual part, a continuation of this narrative today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.